This sermon is called Threads Again, because last week in Threads, sounds like an episode, we played off this uh, colorful garment that uh, Jacob favored his son Joseph with, which then Joseph's brothers stripped off of him, dipped in goat's blood, returned to his father Jacob as uh, a way of making him believe Joseph was dead. We have similar narrative threads here. You look for things that are repeated in Hebrew narrative, in, in all narrative, but particularly as you go through Old Testament narrative. And so we've got uh, similar narrative threads. Potiphar's wife holding another Joseph garment. She stripped off him as he ran from her. Then she shows it to Potiphar to accuse Joseph of forcing himself on her. And this puts Joseph in prison. Of all the stories in the Old Testament, this is one of the most familiar. In fact, uh, I've heard all of my life, I wish we had more Joseph's sermons from this particular text, sermons that prioritize personal integrity, sermons that uh, basically say either, either God rules my life or my appetites do, and see also Joseph as somebody who was ruled by God. And, and, and I'm glad I've, I've heard those sermons over the year. I've, I've needed them, even now, uh, not just when I was a young man, but the exhortation ongoing. But this story was home plate for, uh, it was illustration number one for uh, exhortations like uh, where Paul says to Timothy in the New Testament, flee youthful lusts and see also Joseph and and what he did in this situation. Or if somebody uh, was teaching Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? And and it would say, look, uh, in Joseph, you've obviously got someone who has the word of God and the ways of God stamped on his conscience. Joseph may have been conceited in the way he treated his brothers. We looked at that last week. But he's conscientious in the way that he relates to God. And this is all good. But it's not conscience alone that generates this right refusal of of Potiphar's wife. There's also some shrewdness at work here. Uh, The kind of shrewdness that Jesus talked about when he said the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own than the sons of light. Shrewdness is the ability to calculate outcomes. Joseph was shrewd this way. He knew if he gave in to Potiphar's wife, he became twice the slave. And in one that, she's giving him a command. Lie with me. In fact, in, in the Hebrew text, it's, it's rendered with just two words, imperative force, but the two words carry the sense of bed now. And the description of him at the end of verse 6, notice it again. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That's the same description the text gave us of his mother, Rachel, back in chapter 29. Joseph works for The husband, but Potiphar's wife, will command him to work for her also, and the work is, lie with me. Now, a lot of preaching on this launches into helpful tactics for resisting temptation. And preachers will say things like, you know, temptations to sin are not always subtle. Here in this story, we see that they can come at us with with blunt force trauma in your face, dictatorial even. 
And when sin presents itself that way, temptation to sin, you, you can feel like, you know, I, I can't withstand this. I, I've got to give in. Joseph did fight a good fight. It's true. Uh, he had the, the one-two combination of, of, a, of a conscience that was captive to God and also the shrewdness to know uh, he didn't want to be twice the slave, twice over to the, the Potiphar's. And by the way, although Joseph resists by himself, he's alone here, that doesn't mean we should go at it alone. Uh, if you're going to fight a good fight with temptation like this, because the text deals with this, a good place to say it, you're going to have to have people around you that you can confide in that this is a struggle for you, that you're facing this kind of temptation, this one in particular. Uh, you're going to have people that you, you, you confess to, people that you can ask for help when you're tempted. See, I think sometimes in, in all of our emphasis, and it's a right emphasis on how we want our, our heart change to be gospel motivated, sometimes we give the impression that this is just, you know, we work out these solutions in our mind that we're kind of on our own when it comes to temptation and, and navigating it and, and getting away from it, not, not falling into snares like these. But most of us find we need real help from others, uh, particularly the, the, the greater uh, degree of problem this is. Not a, it's not the same degree of problem for everyone in the room, but for a lot of us, if this opportunity presented itself to us, uh, we would have a very difficult time uh, saying no. And we need others to, to help us do that. And yet, and yet, and yet, when you read the story, Joseph ends up in prison for doing the right thing. The moral instruction I received from this passage usually assumed a reward. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do the right thing in saying no to this temptation, and, and I'll, I'll stay out of trouble. But notice the story. In a situation where we're told repeatedly, I mean, the text goes out of its way. Verse after verse talking about what, what kind of blessing has entered Potiphar's life because he has Joseph. He owns Joseph, and, and slavery is, is not a, a, a good deal at all. But Joseph is having the, the best experience of slavery that one could possibly have in that he's given all of this responsibility. He's, he's chief over everyone. Only Potiphar, he reports to him uh, directly, the same thing's going to happen in the prison scenario at the end of the story. But the text is over and over again telling us of all this blessing. The Lord is blessing Potiphar because he has Joseph around. The Lord is with Joseph. This is said over and over and over, and yet evil still came after Joseph. It doesn't always follow that you're rewarded for doing the right thing. Doing the right thing may be the very thing that stirs someone's passions against you. Joseph is blessed by God, even though he's in slavery at the beginning of this chapter and prison by the end. The Lord is with him. This is said over and over. But in Potiphar's wife, we have the, uh, the X factor. She's not outside of God's control, but she's the most like Satan. 
Uh, she's one of the, the, the most satanic figures we have in the Bible, actually, because you're never more like Satan than when you're providing the temptation, when you're trying to get someone to fall into something with you. So she clearly needed a savior. But in her way of looking at it, and it's still this way, I mean, she's a very modern woman in a lot of respects because it's a very modern person. I shouldn't just designate she is a woman, but she's a very modern person because men and women both nowadays can grasp the idea that they need a Savior, but they think the Savior is in something other than Christ. She thought her Savior would be having a lover, having a boyfriend on the side. That's a common calculation. I mean, did you catch down in the narrative as Eli read it? Look down in verse 14. This is how she speaks of her husband. Verse 14, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. She's saying that about Potiphar. This is what kind of man Potiphar is. He wants the joke to be on all of us. Verse uh, 17, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. You you get the picture that I think it's safe to say this was not a happy marriage. But let me be quick to add. The temptation to adultery, just because the spotlight is on that particular sin in this text, the temptation to adultery can appeal to happily married people. Listen, all of us, go seeking from sin, whatever sin it is for you. All of us go seeking from sin something more for ourselves, and, and it's, it's very easy in particular to make adultery a kind of savior. You know, I, 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 I need to feel wanted. I need to be fulfilled. Now, what I'd like to do with this story is, is I want to put this story beside, within, against the backdrop of the bigger story of the Bible. That bigger story being what God is doing about evil. Uh, That is the big story of the Bible, what God is doing about evil. What happens to Joseph is evil. What his brothers did to him, Potiphar's wife, Potiphar himself, it's, it's all of it Evil, and, and, and evil in the sense of, of that malign personality and power in the world that is absolutely and irreversibly opposed to God's rule. The world is full of evil until Jesus returns and makes all things new, as he says in Revelation 21, he will. And Joseph is a kind of pre-Jesus. I don't talk typology a lot. This is what this is called, typology, where, where an Old Testament figure typifies who the Lord would be. And so Joseph, in a sense, he's kind of a, of a pre-Jesus in that he's going to be the savior of his people as the story plays out, a savior who also suffers. But the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, where Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, Revelation 21, the renewal that happens when his kingdom is here in full, the story of the Bible is the story of what God is doing about evil. You say, well, what about What about the story of the Bible being about Jesus? Even if you say the story of the Bible is about Jesus, Jesus is God's ultimate answer to evil. In the beginning, God makes and creates and everything is good and good and good and very good. And by chapter 3, we've got uh, evil entering the goodness and spoiling it. That's what evil does. It, It takes what is good and corrupts it. 
And so I think we should put this story in Genesis 39 here against the backdrop of the Bible's greater drama because Joseph's story involves God doing in and through the evils that befall him, evils that also befell Jesus in similar ways, betrayal, false accusation, unjust treatment. God brings Joseph to the place where he can say in Genesis chapter 50, I mentioned it last week, we're coming to it, it'll be the last installment in his story. In Genesis chapter 50, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the Bible story. It's Joseph's story. It's Jesus' story. The cross meant for evil, clearly. It's an instrument of Roman state terror, but turned into good. And once Joseph is out of prison, where the end of our story locates him, places him, he goes to prison, he could say the same thing to Potiphar and his wife because of what will happen in his prison experience. What y'all meant for evil against me, God meant for good. But how do we get there? How do we get to that particular place? Some of you will recognize this name, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian dissident back in the Soviet era. He opposed the Soviet communist uh, government, spoke out against it, drew, drew attention, worldwide attention, particularly in the West. Solzhenitsyn drew attention to the Soviet abuses of, of power and people. Solzhenitsyn was a follower of Jesus, and his famous words about his unjust prison experience, he was sent to Siberia for, for years, and when he looked back on that experience, he said this, bless you prison, bless you for being in my life, for there lying upon the rotting straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we have made ourselves believe, but the maturity of the human soul. That's a hard one insight. And Joseph's insight at the end of his life in chapter 50, what you intended for evil, he says to his brothers, God intended for, for good. That, that's, that's a hard one insight. After all that he suffered, God was doing something about the evil that affected him. He wasn't taking it away. He had to go through these things. But something was being done in him and about evil through his life. We could say a lot of things about this, but we're just going to take up with two things. I'll give you a, a first and a second. Here's a couple of points. The sermon will roll through them, and then we're done. First, I want to address with you what God does about evil, this big story of the Bible that's also Joseph's story all this evil that he encounters. What God does about evil, two things, we see two, two narrative threads of this, is he forms the conscience of his people to withstand evil's allure, the draw to evil. Evil can present itself as alluring, as something you should want. Every temptation to sin is, is playing upon our, our desires. Our desires uh, are, are, are easily manipulated and, and brought into conformity to something that's, that's actually evil. And so one of the things God is doing about evil is he's forming the conscience of his people to withstand evil's allure. And then second, what God does about evil is he forms the endurance of his people. To, pers to persevere through, through evil's actions against us. 
So we're going to look at two things here. We're going to look first how God forms the, the conscience of his people to withstand evil's allure, and then we're going to look at how God forms the endurance of his people to persevere through evil's actions against us. These are two threads we find in, Jesus, in Joseph's story. They, they, they're woven into the larger fabric of the biblical narrative, what God is doing about evil. So first, God forms our conscience to withstand evil's allure. When you see Joseph's words in verse 9, he's articulating something that for him to give into would be unconscionable. He says in verse 9, He is not greater in this house than I am, referring to Potiphar, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, Potiphar's wife, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And so we see in this that Joseph related to this sin in particular as if it would only further his captivity. He sees it for what it is. He calls it wickedness. That's the word in, in verse 9. And, and, you know, we don't use that word a lot. If, you, if you're somebody who, who hears that word and kind of think, well, that, that, that feels a little puritanically uh, phrased, you know. Or, or maybe you think, well, well what, what if this didn't really appeal to him? I mean, what, what if it was actually easy for him to say no to her? That he wasn't drawn to her after all. Uh, the textual note on his appearance in verse 6 It's not just why Potiphar's wife noticed him. It's also a narrative clue that this is a healthy young man. That there's no earthly reason why Joseph would not want this for himself, provided the opportunity. He's a normal, functioning, red-blooded Hebrew male. He's not a prude. Denying a woman would never interest him. And here is a woman saying, take me, possess me. Why does he turn her down? Well, for the longest time in, in my moral formation, you know, growing up, coming along, uh, I thought it was great willpower and that you would have to muster, you know, the same uh, extraordinary uh, feat of willpower. And I don't want to say that that's not involved. I mean, Again, sometimes in the way we talk about being gospel-motivated and heart change, we, we give the idea that, that there, there's, there's no energies and, and effort that we have to apply. And when we do, we know we have to make choices and be honest with ourselves and with others. And the further I go in life, the more I emphasize the others component in this, that, that having people that you're honest with about what hunts you or what you go seeking for yourself is so crucial in this. It really is. Conscience is not just having the, the right vocabulary to call sin, sin. Joseph doesn't want to sin against God. He says that in the text. But, but we don't make moral calls like he made at a loss to ourselves without prepossessing something greater that we know is greater. And therefore, I don't really have to have whatever temptation is telling me I must have in order to be fulfilled. You know, if, 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 I, if I do this, if, if, I, if, I, if I don't take this, I'll lose something that I, I really need. 
Temptation speaks to us like that. You, you have to have what you can only locate in this particular sin. But in Christ, God forms our conscience to see through that as a lie. What we have to have, we may want a ton of things, but what we have to have, we ultimately find in our Savior. And as this begins to work in us, and it, and it can take years for this to work into us in such a way that it begins to then change the motivational structures of our hearts, what the object of life is for us, what we pursue, so that even if I feel a loss in saying no to some particular sin, and there is loss in it, especially if it seems everyone around me is saying yes to this. If I say no to it, and I experience a loss of what I could have had, it's a loss I can accept. I don't have to have Potiphar's wife. I don't have to have her on, uh, in person. I don't have to have her on a screen. I'm not driven by a lie. If I am driven by a lie, I'm in captivity then. It's, it seems counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive the way of the world, but it's not freedom to be bound to a sin. It's bondage. A lot of people like to think of themselves as free to do this and that. But in, in reality, they, they are in a kind of bondage. They're not free. They're, they're driven now. They're driven by this lie. Joseph, notice in the text, he even tries to help her understand why this isn't good for her. Though she's a total pagan with no conscience before God. Before he runs from her, he tries to convince her, looking at the text here, why this isn't good for either of them. God forms our conscience to withstand evil's allure, that is to see through it, to see consequences and to fear them. That's part of it. To recognize, I don't, I don't have to have this to, to get what it is I think I, I really need. And you, may, I, you and I may still give in, but there is crushing guilt when we do. If God is forming our conscience and we give in, there is crushing guilt. And the reason why is, is we've, we've sinned against a person, not an object. You don't feel guilt when you, when, you, when you hurt a thing, not necessarily. You feel guilt when you hurt a person. And, and in that experience of guilt... It's evidence that the ways of God are permanently etched. They're tattooed on our conscience. I've never forgotten. It was a significant moment for me in ministry. This is 20 plus years ago. I was serving a church in Franklin as the associate pastor to a Jerry Smith. Jerry has since retired and is living in the Midwest. And Jerry was an older, wiser pastor. I was just starting out and there was a lot I had to learn. Still is a lot I'm learning but uh, God used Jerry to teach me some things. And I remember one time sitting with Jerry and somebody had confessed to me some ugliness in, in their life. And I was telling Jerry about this, breaking confidence as I was doing it. And I was criticizing them. You know, that how did they get themselves into that place? And then even as I was listening to them, know, you know, I was kind of feeling gross. And wow, you know, a bunch of yuck you're throwing on me here. And, and, and then I, at some point in this, I said to Jerry, and I didn't really know what to say to them. And that was Jerry's opportunity. And graciously and gently, he said to me, well, you know, 
I've found it typically helpful when people are confessing sin to first say, praise God. Praise God that he's working in your life and you don't want to be in this anymore. Now how can I help you? I was such an idiot (laughs) that that just hit me across the eyes like, yeah, that is the way we're supposed to do this, aren't we? But I had a lot of legalism to disentangle from, and I'm still a recovering legalist, and, um, and, I, and I, was, uh, I, was, I was moving through it. But I, I've never forgotten that. The first thing you say to somebody who's confessing sin is, praise God. This is good, man. This is good that you want to get out of this. This is good that you're bringing this into the light, and, and you want my help, and I want to help you. Let's figure out what help looks like so you don't go back. We've got to have God working in us. Because when the personality and power of evil puts its charms out there for you full bore, we're not going to be able to stand. We'll fail. And so often the way that God even imprints himself on our conscience is through other people and the help they provide. Trusted people. So we're not without resources, but we have to draw on them. Now, these resources aren't in the text, but you have to draw upon prayer. You have to draw upon counsel in resisting temptation. What you know is true. You you have to draw upon fellowship, as I've been saying, the role of others. I just can't stress it enough. It's crucial in the face of a sin like this, which is so so hidden and and, and wants to so uh, go off and, and, and isolate. What is in the text is is fleeing the scene. And yes, you have to even practice that. You have to risk somebody thinking of you as, a, as goofy in some way because uh, uh, you, didn't, you didn't stick around. But don't expect everything to turn up roses when you withstand evil's allure. You may even experience a sense of loss. Now, this, this, here, here's some advanced humanness. <laughs> But, you know, when I was hearing all those sermons coming along about personal integrity and all, and and they always painted the picture that, you know, doing the right thing will be very satisfying. And you know what? There's times when you do the right thing and you go, man, did I just miss something? Did I just miss out? I could have had her. I could have been with whoever. I could have, I could have, I could have, I could have. And and now you had this, you, you start to wonder Well, is it really worth it? Did I miss something? You second guess. Is doing the right thing really worth it? I mean, I look at all these people who are not doing the right thing, and they seem to be doing okay. Or you may find that evil's claws come out the sharpest when you resist. That's what happened to Joseph. The punitive aspect, and this takes us to our second consideration following these narrative threads. What God is doing about evil is the great story of the Bible. Joseph's story is a microcosm of this. God is forming our conscience, and God is also forming our endurance to persevere through evil's actions against us. I wish I could tell you that evil will never take action against you as a personality or power in the world, but if you belong to the Lord, it will. Potiphar's wife failed in her seduction, but she did not fail in her accusation. Joseph goes to prison for 14 years for this. How long ago does 2005 sound to you? 
14 years. She succeeds in framing him. Look again in the text, verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keepers or the keeper of the prison. Now, it still hurt, (laughs) still made him angry. Joseph would be less than human if it didn't. This This is injustice in all caps. But God let Joseph be so mistreated. I mean, he's with him, but he's also letting evil do its worst to him. Apart from death outside of Christ, slavery and prison, or false imprisonment on top of that, are about the worst that can happen to a person. And before you say, yes, and this is what I don't like about God, how he sits back in the comfort of heaven and lets all this kind of stuff happen to his people, what is he doing? Why is he not here for us as he should be to keep all this from happening? The story of the Bible is what God is doing about evil. And you're free to say, well, I don't like, he's not doing enough. But in Joseph's story, that greater story, what God is doing about evil, it hasn't yet even, we're just underway with the plot line. By this point in Genesis, you're starting to get the picture. Hey, evil is real and it's relentless. And this plot line keeps unfolding throughout Scripture until we get to the climactic resolution. And what is that? The way God deals with evil of every kind, evil at every level, is to let evil do its worst to his own incarnate self. And now evil has a mortal wound. Still active as personality and power in the world, but it's it's bound for eternal quarantine in hell. God has purposed to call a people to himself. We know this. We're part of that number. To call us from our evil to himself. To discover he is better than whatever evil promises. It takes some of us a long time to learn that. But it's the process of God. And God keeps us here. He doesn't leave us here. But he keeps us here for now in a fallen, broken world where evil too often has the open hand. And the upper hand, and this anguishes us, frustrates us. But he's not doing nothing about evil. He did what he would definitively do about it at the cross. A past event with ever-present implications and the reason why there will be a future renewal of the world to come. But for now, what he's doing about evil in the world is he is forming and he is building his people's endurance. Why is this important? How are you going to live in this world as it is without endurance? Without endurance, we get cynical. Without endurance, we get cynical. People who are cynical about this or that are not people who've endured too much, but people who've lost the hope that endurance keeps before us. Man, the the battle of my life is to not get cynical. Because if I get cynical, that means I've lost hope. And if I've lost hope, I'm not practicing endurance. And that means that my expectations of life need to change. Not my expectations of God. Unless my expectations of God are, you ought to keep me seriously happy and free of trouble all the time. Remember Romans 15, 4? We looked at it. 
in the book of Romans where Paul says to the Romans, everything that was written in the past, and by that he means the Old Testament, by that he means Genesis 39, the Joseph story, was written to instruct us so that what? By endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have hope. You stay hopeful through enduring. You know, I could, I could say I wish it wasn't that way, but it would be fruitless to say that. It is that way. If redemption meant God takes us out of this world into his perfect world immediately, then who needs endurance? But if redemption means God stays with us in everything and keeps us in the world to demonstrate to others the difference that he makes in a human life, endurance is a big way we demonstrate that difference. And, and it's, it's not even so much us. It's Christ in us. You know, Christians in, in parts of the world where persecution is commonplace, they will ask us to pray for them. And, and consistently, I have found, in interacting with Christians from those places, reading about them, hearing from them in various capacities, consistently, you've noticed this too, they say, don't pray that God takes away the persecution. Now, we didn't go seeking it, and we don't want any more of it, and if he takes it away, that'd be great. But pray for us that we will endure faithfully. And when they do that, the reason they like to endure faithfully is because they see the gospel spread. And when you live in a, in a particular cultural setting where, where, where the culture gives you no credit for being a Christian. I mean, we still get some credit here. It's a secularizing society, but there's still a sense where uh, being a Christian is, is okay, as long as you don't make too much noise about it or try to affect too much public policy. And, and, it, and, and in our, our particular setting, uh, we, we have these expectations that are framed by, you know, people ought not to, to crowd us, but in a place where you don't have those expectations, the, the value of seeing the gospel spread rises. You still care about what happens to yourself and your family. But it's not your chief preoccupation of life. The gospel does become that. The people of the Lord will rise. And the reason will rise is because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's what you source your endurance in. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That's what we source our endurance in. It's Christ's Love in us, giving us the stamina. I'm weak and afraid way too often. He never is. I want to give up. He never did. I want to give in. He never did. And we feel awful about our, ourselves this way, don't we? I mean, you really get downwind of yourself. I don't know. Am I the only one in here that engages in a lot of self-loathing? Um, we get down one of ourselves and we think, man, you know, endurance. I mean, I feel like I'm barely keeping up sometimes. But that too is endurance. If you keep coming back for more, that's endurance. More of God, more of Jesus. I like uh, what Jack Miller, a seminary professor, said about repentance. He said it's collapsing on Christ, not promising God you'll do everything better. Repentance is collapsing on Christ. The Lord forms our endurance in those times and seasons too. 
and circumstances. Even, even if it's just being sick of ourselves. It's, it's not pleasant to have to persevere through anything. There's deep weariness in it. You, and, and when you're going through a, a season where you're really enduring, you, you think, well, this is it. You know, I, I've, I've reached my limit in this. I can't take any more. This feels like a prison. And maybe you can't take it anymore. God knows. But even at those points, what do you find yourself doing? If God has been forming your conscience and forming your endurance, what you find yourself doing is going back again and again and again to why God took you and placed you in Christ. And you know you want to keep finding out why, and so you keep going with Him. You keep squaring up to everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus again and again and again. That's endurance. God forms that in us just because we are going to encounter evil's actions against us individually and collectively. The story of the Bible is honest about that, but in every place where the Bible is honest about that, we get this also. The Lord is with you. That's a good word. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. We're past time. So we'll just... uh, conclude with benediction after I pray but as I pray as as you bow with me I want to give you a moment to think about where your conscience could be more formed by God's word and his ways where your endurance needs to be formed God brings that to mind for us helps us to see. And again, the point of this is not so that you pledge to do better. It's so you collapse on Christ. It's so you draw renewed strength and energy from Him and and so that you recognize even in the impulse to keep coming back to Him, you're learning how to endure. And it's not fun, but it's needful. Because the world is as it is. And the only thing that changes in this world is what happens when people get redeemed. The world remains as it is. But the people of God are being changed. And even if you can't demarcate or or indicate how how God has been changing you. Things are happening in your life, in your world, that if you ask God for the eyes to see it, He may show you how He is showing up and how His goodness to you is not lost. We do need more Josephs, people of personal integrity, Lord, But we also need Josephs who have been uh, tried by these kinds of fires and come from them still seeking you. And to me, as I get older, Lord, that's the greater story here. I am impressed by his ability to flee Potiphar's wife. But I'm more impressed 
that in the betrayal and the slavery and the prison experience, he continues to present himself to you as one who wants to be used. Thank you, Lord, for the Josephs like that. And help us in looking to you with all our needs. We come into this room not needing to be beaten up for our failures. We do need to be sobered by the reality of evil and how it wants to take us down. And we need to throw away our matches and stop playing with fire. We need to get honest with others and ourselves about what's going on. And I pray that burden bearers for everyone will emerge. That each one will see that there's a burden bearer in every church for every person. People we can practice that honesty with. Not because we uh, want to be moralistic, but because we recognize moral formation is an important part of following Christ in a fallen world. It spreads a fragrance. It indicates a difference and a distinction. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but to say, there is a God, and I can't explain how he always works in my life, but I know he does. And if you're seeing something that you think is good, I want you to know that we credit him. And a simple word like that can do wonders. Lord, make us more enduring. The days are evil. The time is short. We take a lot of things for granted. But may we continue to look to you and find that you are strengthening us and helping us. And that even the desire to please you pleases you. Thank you for the testimonies we've heard in this service. The opportunity we've had to proclaim your truth and to look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen.